Okay, brothers and sisters, let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 8 to verse 20. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of, blessed, of that blessing that you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the awesome privilege of knowing you, of seeing you in Christ. Thank you for the awesome privilege of gathering with believers who also know you and see you. And thank you, Lord, for this time, Sunday morning, to be together. I pray that you would help us now as we think about this passage. Please teach us, Lord. Point out areas in our own life, Lord, where we need change, and where we need to, or where we are not walking according to the truth. Lord, I pray that you would teach us through this passage what is the wise way to live. Lord, thank you for your care for us. And we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled this sermon, Three Foolish Things the Galatians Were Doing. <laughs> Three Foolish Things the Galatians Were Doing. And I've titled it this because in this passage, Paul expresses his perplexity over three foolish things the Galatians are doing. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I wish I could be with you so I could change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The way that you're behaving and the things that you're doing are perplexing. They don't make any sense. They're strange. They're stupid. They're foolish. And Paul is perplexed. And so we're going to look at these three things that he's perplexed about, the three things that they're doing so that we can take heed as well and learn from them 
what not to do and learn from Paul what we should do. Because these things that they're doing, none of us are immune to doing them. We could also do these foolish things as well. We can, in fact, we often do these foolish things. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Three foolish things the Galatians were doing. Number one, the Galatians were foolishly turning away from freedom in the knowledge of God unto the slavery of ignorance. Right? Do you all see that? They were foolishly turning away from the freedom of the knowledge of God or the freedom that the knowledge of God brings to the slavery of ignorance. Notice in verse 8 and 9 that Paul summarizes the process of becoming a Christian as coming to know God. He summarizes it all right here. He kind of encapsulates it and explains it all in a, in a brief way in verse 8. However, at that time when you did not know God, he's addressing them as believers. He says, there was a time when you didn't know God. Christianity or becoming a Christian is about coming to know God. Christianity is not simply about being saved. It's not simply about being saved. It's about knowing God. It's interesting, in, the, in one of my classes I'm taking, this is actually, um, it, it's manifest in many of the atheists in my class that they just don't know the Bible, and they don't know that Christianity is about knowing God. They say, well, why did God create us to sin in the first place? Why doesn't he just create everything nice and if the whole goal is just to go to heaven, why didn't he just make heaven in the first place? And they don't realize that the Bible tells us very clearly that it's actually about knowing God. The end goal is not simply going to heaven, right? It's about coming to know God through this experience of salvation, right? Through understanding your sin and that you deserve damnation and experiencing his love and his grace in Christ. Something you can only know through that experience. It's not simply about being saved, but knowing God through the experience of salvation. And it's in the knowledge of God that we find rest and peace and hope and liberty. Would you all agree, brothers and sisters and believers in Christ out there, that you personally, this isn't just some spiritual speak, but you personally have found hope in the knowledge of who God is. Amen? And you found peace in the knowledge of who God is. That is your salvation, isn't it? Knowing God and resting in Him. So the Bible tells us that by coming to know Christ, we come to know God. And by knowing God, we put our trust in Him. Salvation from beginning to end is about the revelation of who God is. Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. And that should remind us every day that our eyes should be lifted up to the truth of who God is. Amen. Paul says, At that time, before faith, you did not know God. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, you, you are believers now. Now that you have come to know God. Paul adds to this, or rather... You've come to be known by God, or rather to be known by God. Paul is not replacing what he just said. He says, oh, wait, scratch what I just said. It's not about you knowing God. It's about God knowing you. 
It's not an either-or thing. He's just adding to what he said. Because when we come to know God, we come to know that he knows us. This is one of the most amazing things about the knowledge of God, is that you don't even know God unless you realize that he knows you. See, it's not just about knowing God like, hey, do you know the president, you know? Do you know about the president? You know how many dogs he has at the White House? You know how many kids he has? You know where he went to school? You know all these things? You can know a whole lot about the president, but he doesn't know you, right? You can go on Wikipedia and learn about all sorts of people. They don't know you. So coming to know God is not simply about knowing him from a distance, but he doesn't know you. It's about coming to realize that he knows you. God actually knows you. Think about that for a moment. You. Me. Wow. Why would God even be interested in me? We could see why we should be interested in him, but he in us? And yet this is what the gospel tells us. God notices you. God notices you. He's not up there ignorant of who you are. He knows your comings and your goings. He knows your, when you go to work. He knows what your favorite thing to eat and breakfast is. He knows your favorite TV shows. Maybe you don't want him to know that. <laughs> but he knows you. He cares about you. He chose you. He draws you to himself. You don't know God unless you know that he knows you. And God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows all of your sins more than you even know your own sins. God knows the sins that you're going to commit that you don't even know. He knows how bad they are. And yet seeing it all, he loves you. He sent his son to save you. And as a Christian, if you are a Christian, he knows that you are blameless and righteous, even if you forget that sometimes. He knows your real identity in Christ. It's good that he knows that even when we forget, right? God never forgets. God doesn't say, oh wait, is that guy really a righteous person? Can you look that up in the book? That's a comfort that he knows. So Paul is amazed. How is it I'm perplexed that you would turn from the gospel of Christ and his grace to follow after these agitators who are telling you to keep the law for your salvation. I'm perplexed why you would turn from this wonderful condition of knowing God, this wonderful knowledge of who he is, this wonderful hope and peace and freedom that you have in the knowledge of who he is to this slavery again that's based upon ignorance of who God is. Before, Paul says in verse 8 and 9, you were slaves. Look at verse 8. When you didn't know God, you were slaves. Now, he doesn't just say, as we talked about last week, that before we're Christians, we're slaves to the stoikeia. Remember, we talked about that last week. The elementary principles of religion in this world. The ABCs of good and bad and reward and punishment and blessing and curses. Paul doesn't only say, as he did last week, that before you knew Christ, you were slaves to the elementary principles of the world, which, by the way, even paganism taught. He's talking to pagans. Even paganism can give you a basic foundation of right and wrong, reward and punishment and judgment day, and it enslaves you. But before you knew Christ, you foolish people, Galatians, you weren't only enslaved to the ABCs, 
You were enslaved to gods that didn't even exist. The gods that you believed in weren't even the real God. They didn't even exist. They weren't even real. You didn't know the one true God, the God of grace, love, the God who, knowing, gives you freedom. What you thought was real wasn't even God. Why would you want to go back to ignorance? Why would you want to go back to a false God that isn't even real and enslave yourselves? Now that you know the true God of grace, would you turn back to slavery? It's like someone who's lived in slavery, they've been set free, now they're living in freedom, and they want to go back to slavery? That's foolish. Verse 9, Paul calls calls the elementary principles or the stoikia weak and beggarly. Elementary religion, brothers and sisters, cannot justify anybody. If you go elsewhere besides Christianity and the truth of the gospel of Jesus, doesn't matter where it is, travel to any part of the world, go to any of the other religions, they're going to give you the basics ABCs of religion. They're going to tell you there's a good way to live, there's a bad way to live, and if you want to be blessed and have, have it good in the afterlife and all that, you need to do the good thing. And Paul says this elementary thing, this elementary ABCs in Stoichia religion, is weak and beggarly. It cannot get you to eternal life. It cannot justify you. It leaves you destitute and beggarly. It makes you a beggar, and it leaves you in condemnation. And by the way, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. That's exactly what God wants the ABCs to do. Remember how Jesus says in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, and he starts by saying, blessed are the spiritual beggars. That's what he says. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritual beggars, the the people who have failed the ABCs. The ABCs, the simple stuff. Blessed are the ones who know that they've got nothing. They know that they're destitute. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Not blessed are those who have righteousness in and of themselves. But blessed are those who know they don't have it and they're hungry for it and they're thirsty for it. They want it. They don't have it. You'll have it. You shall be filled. And as Paul taught, the, the ABCs of religion, which of course gives, has its best expression in the law, is meant to bring us to that place of destitution it's meant to make us beggars. It's meant to, meant to make you mourn. It's meant to make you hungry so that you can turn to Christ and be saved. They are weak and beggarly, these, the ABCs. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 tells us that what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, God did for us in sending Christ to die for us, to become sin for us, and to give us that which we could not obtain and achieve in in ourselves. You remember what that is? Righteousness. What the law couldn't do, what the stoicheia couldn't do, God did for us in sending Christ. This is what Christianity is all about. You can't do it. God did it for you. Isn't God amazing? Put your hope in him. He provides you righteousness. That's what you need to get eternal life. And because of Christ, you don't have to remain a beggar, you don't have to remain hungry and thirsty, and you don't have to remain mournful. He will turn your mourning into laughter 
They'll be laughing like Sarah laughed at Isaac. I mean, isn't it funny that I'm saved? Me. Isn't it funny that me, a sinner, I'm a son of God, inheritor of the blessings promised to Abraham. That's goofy, but that's God. <laughs> if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, you're not under that weak and beggarly system anymore. You're in Christ. You're not a beggar. You're a son of God. You can rejoice and be glad. And I think all of us Christians know we aren't hungry anymore. We've been filled. Amen? Why go back then? Now, what do they want to go back to? This is a fascinating thing. What do the Galatians want to go back to? Do they want to go back to paganism? They were pagans. They were ignorant pagans. They didn't even know God. They followed after gods that didn't even exist. And now they're going back. Paul's saying, you want to go back to slavery and ignorance and condemnation? Well, what do they want to go back to? Do they think they're going back to paganism? Do they say, you know what, I like paganism better than Christianity? No. The amazing thing here is that the Galatians are foolishly turning away from the freedom of the knowledge of God back to the slavery of Jewish law because they're following the agitators who came to them and said, hey, we're Christians too, but in order to be right with God and in order to be saved, we need to keep the law of Moses. No, they don't think they're going back to paganism, and they don't think they're going back to ignorance, and they don't think they're going back to slavery. They think they're actually making progress here. I do believe in the one true God now. I do believe that there's only one God. I do believe he's the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do believe that he sent Christ to save us for our sins. I simply believe also that we have to keep the law in order to be saved. And Paul says, and, and they say, isn't that different? Isn't, isn't the, aren't the agitators here, aren't these, aren't these Christians from Jerusalem telling us something different than paganism? And Paul says, no, this is the amazing thing. Isn't that radical? Paul says, to follow the agitators into the law of Moses is no different than when you were a pagan worshiping gods that did not even exist. That's amazing. C.K. Barrett comments, we find here as extraordinary a statement as is to be found anywhere in Paul's letters. Here in Galatians, he virtually equates Judaism with heathenism. To go forward into Judaism is to go backward into heathenism. That's what's happening here. You see that Paul's saying that? You guys are going back to your pagan, ignorant slavery by following these pseudo-Christians into the law of Moses. This isn't because Judaism does not possess real truth that pagans don't have, okay? Judaism really does possess real truth that paganism doesn't have. But what Paul's saying here is that if you go with these agitators unto justification by the law, it's back to the same old bondage, it's back to the same old condemnation, and it's back to the same old ignorance of God. back to the same old ignorance of God. And we see Jesus saying that about his own generation when they continually said, we have God as our Father, 
And he says, God is not your father. In fact, you don't even know him. You don't even love him. His word isn't even in you. You're, you're believing in a God that doesn't exist because you don't know the Father. And so fascinatingly, by following these pseudo-Christians into what looks good, what looks biblical, what looks like it's following God and his law, is actually back to the old slavery of unbearable rules, condemnation, fear, all due to ignorance of God. Look at verse 10. The Galatians are already participating in the things that the agitators are guiding them into. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. We should understand this as Jewish holidays, Sabbaths, new moons, jubilees. It's not pagan holidays he's got in view here, but Jewish holidays. And they seem to already have been observing them. Now let's be clear. The Apostle Paul is not against celebrating holidays. Some people use this verse actually to say that Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving or any holidays or birthdays or anything. You observe days and months and years. You're, you're departing from Christ. Paul is not against celebrating holidays, even celebrating Jewish holidays. He, he himself celebrated Jewish holidays. If you read the book of Acts, he wanted to go to Jerusalem at the Passover, right? And many Christians in Jerusalem celebrated the holidays, and that's fine. Paul was not against celebrating holidays and Jewish holidays, but he was against being under the law. He was against seeking justification by the law. And the law says you must celebrate the holidays. The law requires you to keep the Sabbath. The law requires you to keep the Passover. The law requires you to keep the year of Jubilee. And so it's one thing to celebrate the holidays, but it's another thing to say you have to do it in order to be right with God. That is what Paul stood against. This you have to which is what the agitators were saying. You have to keep the law. That means you have to keep the holidays. Although bear in mind that it can be just as legalistic to demand that you have to not celebrate them, right? Those people who say you can't celebrate them are often just as legalistic. You celebrate a birthday, you are not a Christian. <laughs> oh, so I have to not celebrate a birthday. The agitators said they must keep the law. Some of the easiest commands to follow in the law are these ceremonial holidays, Sabbaths. People feel good about doing the easy stuff in the law. People justify themselves by saying, well, yeah, I, I know I sin, you know, I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect, but at least I keep the ceremonial stuff. Other people don't do that, so that gives me an edge, right? I may, I may sin like everybody else, but I don't, no one else keeps the ceremony stuff. I keep the Sabbath. I'm honoring God. That makes me different. But it doesn't. To keep the law, you must keep it all. And you're condemned if you think that you have to keep the law. So this is the foolish thing. And look at verse 11. Paul expresses fear for them because of this foolish thing that they were doing. Paul was afraid that they may not actually be 
Christians because they were wavering on the point of justification. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Meaning my time spent with you, my labor with you, my preaching with you, my instruction with you seems to be vain. Or it seems to be perhaps vain. Because they're wavering on justification. When testing came, when the agitators came and tested their convictions about righteousness through faith. Oh, you believe in righteousness through faith alone. Yeah, you believe what Paul told you. I do. You know he's wrong? Really? Yeah. Look, the Bible says that we have to keep the law perfectly all the time. Well, not perfectly. They wouldn't say that. There's my Christian mindset coming through my mouth. Um, We have to keep the law in order to be saved. Really? Yes. So Paul was, uh, he, he didn't give me the whole truth? No. Oh, okay. And you see, a person seems to believe because they hear from someone. They hear from Paul. They hear from a Christian. And that's all they've heard, maybe. Maybe this pagan hears the gospel and, oh, really, that's how it is. But then someone else comes behind and says, yeah, that's not actually how it is. And when you waver and you doubt and you depart from the faith, it shows that you really didn't understand the gospel in the first place. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13, 21. Jesus says that there are the, the seed that gets sown upon the rocky ground. And they hear the word at first, and they're excited about it, and they believe it. And they say, wow, this is really cool. This is really good news. But it doesn't last. And why doesn't it, when, when is it revealed that there was no root? He says there's no root there. They didn't actually understand. They didn't actually get it. They didn't actually grasp righteousness through faith. They just got on board quickly without any root. And Jesus says when testing comes, when trials comes, when persecution comes, when temptation comes, it is then revealed that they don't have any root. There was no actual understanding and faith. It was a fad. It was an excitement. It was something they grabbed onto without real understanding. Testing comes and testing reveals whether we really believe or not. One of the examples is found in the book of Genesis with Abraham. Abraham believed God before he was tested, but when God tested him, put him through a trial, do you really believe my word? Abraham was found to be faithful. He was found to really believe when the testing came. Testing will come to all of us in whatever form. Persecution, temptation, trial, false teachers, it'll come. Testing will reveal whether you really believe. The Galatians hadn't yet failed the test. Paul is not saying, you guys, I did labor in vain. He's just saying, I'm afraid I've labored in vain. It seems like you guys are going along with these agitators. They were in the midst of the test. But Paul hadn't said they weren't Christians because true Christians can waver. True Christians can get a little confused, but they will ultimately pass the test. And so Paul's writing this letter, and, he's, and this, is going to, this is going to be the case, the, the litmus test here. Are you going to follow the truth, or are you going to follow these agitators? And brothers and sisters, when someone stands 
strong on justification through faith alone in the midst of testing, and they do not depart, whether it be through persecution or false teachers, then they have revealed that they really do have faith. Look at 1 Thessalonians with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And here was a group that Paul was, he was certain that they had faith. And there's a reason why he was certain that they had faith. First Thessalonians 1, 3 to 7. Or verse 2 is more natural to begin. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So he says here in verse 4, I'm totally confident and know that you are one of the elect. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So why is Paul so confident of these men? Because they were tested. Because they received the word of God in the midst of much tribulation. They received the word of God when the world was against them believing. And they stood fast and they, they believed, showing that they really did understand. They had steadfastness of hope. And Paul said, we give thanks for you, knowing your election. <clears throat> so I think what we can take from this, this incident in Galatians where Paul says, I'm afraid lest I've labored in vain, is that when a person believes the gospel, first of all, so long as a person is believing the gospel, so long as a person is saying they believe, we have every reason to believe that they believe. We have every reason to treat them as a Christian. If they, if they believe and they're saying they believe, we have every reason to treat them as a Christian. But testing will come sooner or later, and it will reveal whether they really do understand or whether they don't. The exhortation for us here, don't do the foolish thing that the Galatians were doing. If you have learned the knowledge of God through Jesus, if you have heard that, if you've been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the seed has been sown upon you, believe in that. Stand in faith with steadfastness of hope and do not turn away from the liberty of the knowledge of God back to the slavery of ignorance. If you turn back to the slavery of ignorance, it just shows that you never really understood the true knowledge of God. Here's the second thing the Galatians were doing that was foolish as we go on in chapter 4 here. Not only were they turning away from freedom in the knowledge of God unto slavery of ignorance, 
They were turning away from Paul, who was telling them the truth. And so here's a foolish thing for people to do. It's foolish to turn away from those people who tell you the truth. Verse 12 through 16 is one of the most moving and emotional passages in Paul's letters. Verse 12 to 16. Paul's not giving an argument in these passages at all. He's reminiscing and he's appealing to their hearts. He mentions his labor among them in verse 11 and it makes him think of their first time together. It's amazing the emotion in this passage and it actually comes through in its structure because as it's been noted by commentators, verses 12 through 16 is not a well-structured paragraph at all. It's a very poorly written paragraph. The sentences are either very short or when they're long, they're not well put together. And these are all telltale marks of honest emotion and genuine feeling. So from verse 12 to 16, Paul's really just bearing his soul and his heart, reminiscing about the wonderful time they spent together at the beginning. This makes it a little bit difficult to interpret, but that's the beauty of this passage. James Montgomery Boyce says, The deep pastoral concern of Paul for the Galatians, which has stood behind even his staunch biblical and theological discussion, here surfaces. The deep pastoral concern of Paul for the Galatians surfaces here. But Boyce points out that this deep emotional pastoral concern for them was behind everything in the letter. It was behind all of his hard statements. It was behind even his theological arguments. It's just now kind of emerging and surfacing in this passage. What we can see here is that theology is pastoral. It's not that he did theology before and now he's becoming pastoral and now he's kind of getting emotional. He's been emotional from the beginning. And theology is pastoral. And brothers and sisters, the longer that I live, the more I realize that theology is pastoral and that our problems and our fears and our discouragements and our despair ultimately has to do with how we think about God. And how we think about God has to do with how we think about the scriptures. How you think about God will change the way that you live and it will change the way that you feel and it will change the way that you relate to other people. It will ch- it's the difference between hope and despair. It's the difference between peace and restlessness and anxiety. Theology is pastoral. So I just want to point that out that Paul's not just now getting emotional. He's not just now starting to care for them. This is just an evidence of what's been there all along. The truth will set you free. Lies will put you into bondage. Whenever you feel yourself in bondage, whenever you feel yourself fearing, whenever you feel yourself losing hope, that's the time to note and say, you know, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm missing something here about God. Because if I really, if I just grasp reality, I'd be at peace. As I said, this makes it a little hard to interpret. Look at verse 12. Paul begins this rather pathetic passage by saying, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. That's hard to interpret, but here's what I think he means. 
Don't become like the agitators. Don't become like the guys who are telling you you need to go under the law. But be like me. What am I? I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. I'm a sinner putting all of my hope in Jesus Christ and in God's grace, undeserved grace. Don't be like them who are pursuing self-righteousness and who are trying to earn their salvation and make themselves acceptable. Become like me, a sinner saved by grace. For I became like you. And what does he mean when he says, for I became like you? I, I think what he means here is what he said back in chapter 2, verse 14, which is what, what, which is what we talked about when we looked at this passage. From a Jewish perspective, the Gentiles were unclean and they had no righteousness. The Gentiles had no hope in what they, in what they were doing. They, they, the Gentiles had nothing to commend themselves to God. And the Jews saw them as worthless, unclean, no righteousness. The only way these Gentiles are going to have any hope is if they become like us Jews, submit to the law and obey. And Paul in 2.14 reminds Peter that, hey, we're Jews, but we don't have our life by being Jews and by being under law. We have our life by just the same way Gentiles who believe in Jesus have their life. We've become Gentiles. We've become unclean. We've become nothing. We've acknowledged that we have no righteousness of our own either. We've given up the pretension of righteousness, realized our situation's no different than theirs. We're all unclean in need of grace. And so this is what I think Paul is saying when he says, become like me, for I've become like you. Ironically, these are Gentiles who are being tempted to become Jews. And he's saying, hey, I'm a Jew. I became like a Gentile. Follow my example, not theirs, as a sinner saved by grace. The next, sec the next phrase here in verse 12, you did me no wrong. I believe, belongs to the following verses, not to verse 12. Might have been better put with verse 13. In the Greek, it, it's best translated as, you did me no wrong. He's now referring to this time when he was with them at first. You did me no wrong. What does he mean by that? Well, let's look at verse 13 and 14. When I was with you, you know that it was because of a bodily illness, my translation puts it, that I preached the gospel to you at first. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And Paul here recounts his first time together with the Galatians. He gives us here some details that we simply are ignorant about. We don't know what he means by these things, his bodily illness and the trial that they had with him. There's insider information here. He doesn't stop to fill in people like us who are reading 2,000 years later. The Galatians know because they were there and he was there. Here's what we can know. When Paul was first with them, there was something about him that could have made them reject him. When Paul was first with them, there was some, something about Paul that created a trial that could have made them say, this guy is odd and weird and we don't want him. But they did not do that. But they received him in a heartfelt way. They received him heartily. What was it that could have turned them off to Paul? 
Some people say it was a bodily illness. My translation kind of goes that way. Maybe Paul looked like an ugly man. Maybe he was... Um, one, one old ancient commentator thought he, Paul was an ugly man, actually. You, if you saw him, you would have been repulsed by how ugly he was. <laughs> Maybe that's what turned them off. How can anyone speak the word of God who looks that ugly? <laughs> um, the majority think that it was some bodily illness, like maybe he was partially blind. Maybe he couldn't see very well, and maybe there was a temptation to think, how can a man who's partially blind, like isn't that symbolic that he doesn't really have the truth, you know? If he's the one giving light to the world, if he's the one here proclaiming the message, why doesn't God heal his eyes? So many people think maybe he was partially blind, I don't know. And one other option you could say is, that, that this could be, is that it was the message itself that was offensive. Um, because the Greek is literally the weakness of flesh. The weakness of flesh. Where he says, it was due to weakness of flesh that I preached the gospel to you at the first time. So you could interpret that. I'm preaching the gospel to you because of the weakness of the flesh to fulfill the law. I'm preaching the gospel to you because you are not capable of being right with God. And that's offensive. And maybe that was an opportunity for you to turn away from me. We don't know. But what we do know is that they received him hardly. He says here, you received me as an angel of God. Amazing. When was the last time you received someone as an angel of God? You ever received someone as an angel of God? A messenger of God? He goes even further. You received me as Christ Jesus himself. Wow. Wow. You received me as Christ Jesus himself. That reminds me of something Jesus said when he sent out the apostles. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And those who receive you are actually not just receiving you. They're receiving me. Because it's my message and my truth that they're preaching. If you receive an apostle or someone who's preaching the truth, you're actually not just receiving them, but you're receiving Christ Jesus himself. And Jesus says, if you receive Christ Jesus, who are you receiving? The Father. You're receiving God. You can't bypass Jesus and get to God. But you also can't bypass the messengers that are sent with the gospel to Jesus. We we come to Jesus through the truth of the gospel. You receive me as Christ Jesus himself. John Calvin says this about the uh, Roman Catholic preachers in his day. I quote, In vain do the papists attempt to hold out this pretext for their own arrogant pretensions. As they are plainly the enemies of Christ... How absurd is it that they should assume the garb and take to themselves the character of Christ's servants? I like what he says here. If they wish to obtain the honors of angels, let them perform the duty of angels. If they wish that we should listen to them as to Christ, let them convey to us faithfully his pure word. Amen. Yeah. You know, a lot of people want to be 
received as Christ Jesus and as an angel of God. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a, I'm a preacher of God. You better receive me as the one giving the word of God. And Calvin says, if you want to be received as an angel, do the duty of an angel. You want to be received as Christ, preach the word of Christ. And if you don't preach the word of Christ, then we do not dare treat you as a messenger of Christ. It was a happy time, clearly, when Paul was with the Galatians. And he asked them in verse 15, where is the sense of blessedness that you have? Things have changed. When I was with you, it was blessed time. It was a happy time. It was beautiful. You loved me. You received me. I gave you the word. You received me as Christ Jesus. That was a blessed time, wasn't it? What happened to that blessedness? Such blessedness, brothers and sisters, such affection is a result of the gospel. That blessedness was there because of the truth, because of Christ, because of what Paul was sharing with them and what they were believing. It created blessed times. If you and I want to experience blessed times and blessed affection between one another, we have to tune our ear to the truth of the gospel. If we turn our ears away, we shouldn't be surprised when blessedness departs. Because something changed, didn't it? Paul is now saying something changed here. Things are different. What happened? What happened? What changed? And the only thing that changed is that false teachers came to Galatia and they introduced lies. That's what changed. Lies. Because as I said, it's how we think about God and about the scriptures that will determine everything else. It wasn't that they just woke up one day and were ticked off with Paul. <laughs> it wasn't because the Galatians had a series of bad events take place and they got bitter against God. It was because false teachers came and introduced lies and confusion into their minds. That's what changed. Beware of false teaching and lies. They'll rob you of your blessedness. We see what happens when our heads are messed up. We do foolish things, like turning away from those who tell us the truth. What a foolish thing to do, to turn away from those who tell you the truth. Truth begets hatred. Look at verse 16. Truth begets hatred. But Jesus said that all who are of the truth will listen to the truth. So there's two things that happen when we preach the truth in this world. One, we beget hatred. You preach the truth in this world, people will hate you. We will make enemies by telling the truth. Something else will happen when we tell the truth, though, and we preach the truth. There are those who are of the truth who will listen to the truth. There are those who will receive us as Christ Jesus, the exact opposite of treating us as an enemy. What an amazing thing. So we can be tempted to not tell the truth because we don't want to make enemies. How many of you don't want to make any enemies? How many of you love making enemies? It's nice when people don't like you, isn't it? No. And so there's a temptation in all of us not to tell the truth because we don't want to make enemies. And I'll tell you this. If you don't tell the truth, you won't make enemies. At least not enemies on, because of the truth. 
You might make enemies for other reasons. <laughs> but if you keep your mouth shut in this world, you won't make enemies on account of the truth. However, brothers and sisters, we, the Church of Jesus Christ, are commissioned and sent to tell the truth into all this world, into the places where we live and the places where we work and the places where we will go, into all the world, into all creatures, we're commissioned by Christ to tell the truth, which means if we follow that commission, it is the lot of the Christian church to make enemies. If we don't make enemies, something's wrong. Beware of all men when all men speak well of you. Just like Jesus made enemies for telling the truth, so will we. But by telling the truth and by making enemies, we will get the truth out there to those who will receive us as the angels of God. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth, Paul says? So here's the second foolish thing the Galatians are doing. They're turning away from him who is telling them the truth. Here's an exhortation for us. Don't turn away from those who tell you the truth. They tell you the truth because they love you. If they didn't love you, they would not tell you the truth. Here's the last thing that the Galatians are doing, the third thing, the foolish thing that they were doing. And it's the flip side of turning away from those who tell you the truth. And we see this in verse 17 and 18. They were turning toward those who were selfishly using them. They were turning toward those who were selfishly using them. It's kind of a formula or an equation here. If you turn away from those who tell you the truth, you will inevitably turn toward those who selfishly use you. Why? Because if you don't want to hear the truth, you're going to be drawn to those who don't tell you the truth. You're going to be drawn to those who tell you lies, who tell you things that maybe you just want to hear, that flatter you. And they are doing that because they don't love you. And they're doing that because they are selfishly using you. And so to turn away from those who tell you the truth is to turn toward those who selfishly use you with their lies because they don't love you enough to tell you the truth. The, the agitators certainly seem to love the Galatians. We see this in verse 16, or sorry, 17. They eagerly seek you. They're zealous for you. They're flattering you. They're giving you gifts. They're interested in you. They're showering you with attention and time and teaching. But Paul sees through it because it's not the truth. They're not seeking you commendably. See, there's lots of people in this world who will give you attention. And believe me, people love attention, don't they? They love attention. They love people giving them their time. They love gifts. They love flattery. They love people liking them. And people and false teachers come along and, and Satan sends his agents to do just that because he knows he'll get people who are more interested in being courted than they are in hearing truth. We should stop and say, you know, I really like these gifts. And I really like the attention you're giving me, but is this true? Because I want truth. That's what I want. 
Paul says in verse 17 what they're actually doing. They're courting you. They seem to love you, but they don't love you if there's no truth. Because here's what they really want. They want to exclude you. That means they're telling you you're not really a Christian. You're not really one of Abraham's seed. You're not really the people of God unless you keep the law. No, you guys are outside still. You need to come in still. Why are they excluding you from the family of God? They're doing it so that you will seek them. So that you'll be amazed by them. Wow. Oh, these people are the real people of God. These people are the real children of Abraham. These people are under the law and doing it. I mean, they're telling me I have to keep the law to be saved. These people are doing it. Wow. Them. These people. Ooh. <laughs> Look how holy they are. Look how righteous. What model examples they are. And the false teachers love it. They want everyone to be impressed with them. They want everyone to be devoted to them. Here's how Paul saw the situation. And here's how Paul understood zealously courting someone or true courting of someone. Paul saw things this way. And listen to this. and Listen carefully. That you and I were made for God and not for man. Who do you exist for? Do you exist to be devoted to human teachers? Do you exist to be devoted to apostles? Do you exist to seek after men? Or do you exist for God? And you, are, you belong to him and your affections and your heart and your attention is toward him, ultimately. And human teachers are only there to point you to Christ. Amen? Amen. Not to point you to them, but to point you to Jesus, the one that you were created for, the one who died for you, the one who loves you more than anyone else loves you, the one who is your bridegroom, the one that you will spend eternity with in the marriage relationship between Christ and the church. If a teacher isn't pointing you to Jesus and not just trying to heap up people to himself, then he's not courting you commendably. Now, Paul does say there is a commendable way to court someone and turn to 2 Corinthians, and Paul himself did this. Paul himself courted them commendably. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, or verse 2, excuse me. And Paul uses the same words in the Greek, except now he applies it to himself. I zealously sought you and seek you. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. In the Greek, it's the same words he used in Galatians 4, verse 17. Second Corinthians 11, verse 2. Here's what he says. I am jealous for you. In the Greek, it's I am seeking you. I'm giving attention to you. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Why? For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. 
that's what that's why Paul's interested in you. That's why Paul's zealously courting you. That's why Paul is seeking you out and jealous for you and spending time and writing letters to you. Not because he wants you to become disciples of him, but because he wants to present you to Christ Jesus as a pure virgin. That's Paul's, that's his mission. That's the opposite of what the agitators were doing. They're jealous for you so that you'll become jealous for them. Here's the exhortation. Don't follow those who won't tell you the truth and who won't point you to Christ and whose mission isn't to make it about to, to, to present you to Christ as a pure virgin because they're simply selfishly using you. Don't be superficial and look at people who are courting you and say, well, they're nice, they flatter me, they give me gifts, they care for me. Don't be superficial. Ask the deep question, what are they teaching me and who are they ultimately pointing me to? Is it Christ? That's the test. That's what matters. In conclusion this morning, we'll just look at verse 19 of chapter 4 of Galatians. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I want you to notice, Paul doesn't say this. He doesn't say, until Christ be formed again in you. It's not that he says, Christ was formed in you and you've lost it. And now I need Christ to be formed in you again. He says, I labor again until Christ be formed in you. And he refers once again to his labor. He pointed out his labor in verse 11. I fear for you that I have perhaps labored over you in vain. And now he says, I got to labor again because you're obviously not getting it. You're wavering on this issue of justification. You're wavering on this issue of Christ and the gospel of grace. I got to labor again because it may be that Christ is not formed in you. So here I labor again so that Christ may be formed in you. Becoming a Christian by faith in the truth, is, according to this verse, having Christ formed in you. Becoming a Christian is about having Christ formed in you. This is what real ministry is all about. This is where it ultimately counts. It's what we don't see with our physical eyes. It's not the visible, but the invisible thing that counts. The thing that really happens when the gospel is believed, but is not seen. Are you a new creation in Christ? Have you been delivered from the old age and from the old man of condemnation? Has Christ been formed in you? That's what ultimately matters. And what does it mean that Christ would be formed in you and that we become a new creation in Christ? Paul talked about this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, where he said, For I through the law died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is something we don't see with our physical eyes, but this is what happens when you become a Christian. And if this hasn't happened, then you haven't believed. Has Christ been formed in you? He's talking here about dying with Christ and being alive together with Christ. 
union with Christ by faith in his death and in his resurrection, where he took your place and died, and by faith you died with him. He rose from the dead. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are now risen. And the Bible says, if you're a Christian, you're conformed to his image. You are a son just like he is a son. Your sonship, of course, doesn't consist in you being righteous in and of yourself, but your sonship is because you're in Christ the Son. Everything is borrowed from him. You've been made conformable to his image. He has been formed in you. So when Christ looks at you now as a believer, Christ doesn't see your old sinful self anymore. Uh, God sees Christ. God sees the new creation. That's what ministry, the ministry of the gospel is all about. Is it about you anymore? Is it about you still or is it about Christ? It's no longer I, but him. And I want you to notice in closing here in verse 19, notice how Paul doesn't even finish his thought. I don't know if, that's, if that comes out in your Bible's translations, but it should. Paul doesn't even finish his thought because he's so overcome with emotion right here. My, little, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And it's like he kind of is just, he, he's, his breath is taken away there. He pauses, he stops, and he is overcome with emotion because this is what it's all about. Brothers and sisters, God loves you so much. Do you know that about him? He knows you. He notices you. He cares about you. He knows all of your sins. He knows the sins you're going to commit tomorrow and the next day until you die. He knows you. He chose you. He loves you. And he sent Christ to save you. And it's in knowing who he is, in this knowledge of him, that we have life, freedom, and rest. If you do not know God through Jesus Christ, then today is the day to learn and to incline your ear and to listen and look at Jesus and see what Jesus shows us about God. Because it's in knowing him that we have salvation in life. And if you do know him, if you are believing in him, here's something that we all need to hear. Don't do the foolish things the Galatians were doing, but instead let us do the wise things. Let us stand fast in the freedom of the knowledge of God. Let us stand fast in the freedom of the knowledge of God. If you know God, stand fast in that freedom. Do not budge when the devil comes and tries to make you budge. Let us give heed to the truth and to those who preach the truth. And let's always be questioning, is that the truth? Let's be concerned first and foremost with the truth. And lastly, let's do the wise thing and beware of those who, although they look like they care about us, they're actually tempting us with fair-sounding lies for their own selfish ends. Be on guard and don't be foolish and follow after people like that. You were made for God alone, and in the knowledge of God is life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the warnings 
thank you for the Apostle Paul and in his pastoral concern for the Galatians. And thank you that we have this letter to read and to learn from. Help us to learn from it, Lord. Teach us your ways. Teach us your truth. Point out in our lives where we may be listening to error and where we may be fascinated by fair-sounding lies. Help us to be lovers of truth more than anything else. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for the knowledge of who you are in Jesus, and we thank you most of all, Lord, that you know us and that you have revealed your care for us. Help us to set our mind on that every day and to be glad and thankful and to draw from you our joy and our peace and our rest, knowing that you love us, you care for us, you're in control, and that you sent your son to die for us. None of our sins, Lord, are too great for the blood of Christ. Thank you for who you are. We praise you, Lord, and I praise you, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen.